Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called God Has Heard, Hannah's Song. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, November the 15th, 2015. About a month ago, when I turned 60, I finished a book by Marcus Borg called Convictions, How I Learned What Matters Most. Borg wrote about 30 books across his career. In some ways, he wrote the same book over and over. Convictions was his last book, published just before he died at the age of 72 from idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Borg was one of a very few New Testament scholars who wrote simple books for a general audience. He wasn't embarrassed to declare his passion for a life of faith. He shared his own journey from a conservative Lutheran upbringing to a progressive Christianity. And he was both forceful and ironic in presenting his views. Convictions originated with Borg's 70th birthday in a sermon that he gave for the occasion. He begins the book by reflecting on that milestone. Turning 70, he wrote, has not been grim. He says, in fact, that turning 60 was much harder. It felt old. He writes, at 70, I primarily feel gratitude. Each extra day feels like lagniape, a Cajun French word that means something extra, like the cherry on top of the whipped cream, on top of the hot fudge, on top of the ice cream. I enjoy my days more than I ever have. At 70, life is too short to spend even an hour feeling preoccupied or grumpy or out of sorts. I experienced my own mixed feelings at milestone 60. I can only aspire not to feel grumpy for even an hour. At 60, I have a greater sense of the limits imposed by life. I now know that not every problem can be fixed, that pain and suffering run deep, and nobody gets a free pass. I get discouraged watching the nightly news with its surreal mix of the tragic and the trivial. When I turned 50, I had a big party. But this birthday was more deliberately downscale. I had a few friends over for dinner. I did my first ever triathlon with my son. And thanks to a friend, we gathered our family at the beach. What I most felt about turning 60 was a deep sense of gratitude. I resonated with what Borg wrote about turning 70. I feel increasingly grateful for the gift of life with all its blessings and sorrows, and despite all that we see in the world. I've grown to love the Eucharistic prayer of great thanksgiving that we confess every Sunday morning at my church. It is right and a good and joyful thing, always and everywhere, to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. 
And so, in a letter to Journey with Jesus donors last month, I quoted the poem Otherwise by Jane Kenyon. My wife gave me this poem some time ago after hearing it at Stanford University. Kenyon writes, I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birchwood. All morning, I did the work I love. At noon, I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and planned another day just like this day. But one day, I know it will be otherwise. This is a short poem with short sentences and short words, almost all of which are one syllable. It considers the simplest pleasures of life, sleep, food, the family dog, and work. The ordinary routines of a normal day, nothing more than eating a bowl of cereal, call us to pay attention, to cultivate gratitude and to remember, in the words of the last line, the brevity of life. The story of Hannah about the birth of Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 1 echoes similar stories about barren women who gave birth to a special child late in life due to the special favor of God. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Samson's unnamed mother, and Elizabeth in Luke's Gospel. And is there anything that evokes joy and gratitude more than the birth of a baby? Hannah's song exudes gratitude and thanks. My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted. This might well be a literary model for Mary's Magnificat. God reversed Hannah's bad fortune. He remembered her bitterness of soul, much weeping, deep troubles, and great anguish. He alone, says Hannah, is in control. And so, in 1 Samuel 1.20, she named her baby Samuel. She says, because I asked the Lord for him. In fact, the name Samuel means God has heard. Joy and gratitude in our broken world can sometimes strike a false note. They can feel platitudinous, even glib. Isn't it presumptuous to claim God's personal favor, a narcissistic indulgence? And what about the millions who suffer in all the unanswered prayers? Those are important questions. But the audacious idea of the personal care of a transcendent God isn't an evangelical invention. It's a gift of the Hebrew imagination. 
And so I've always loved the wise words of the 14th century English mystic, Julia of Norwich. She said, the greatest honor we can give Almighty God is to live gladly because of the knowledge of his love. For books this week, I review a new title by Ta-Nehisi Coates. It's called Between the World and Me, New York, Spiegel and Grau, 2015. This book is 152 pages. Toni Morrison has called Ta-Nehisi Coates' new book Required Reading. That's usually just a dust jacket blur by the marketing department. But this time, it might actually be true. In her own review for the New York Times, Michelle Alexander says she read the book twice. In fact, it's been nominated for a 2015 National Book Award in nonfiction. And just two months after its release, in July of 2015, Coates won a MacArthur Genius Grant. Coates' book is a 152-page letter to his 15-year-old son, Samori, that's rooted in a harsh critique of race history in America. How do I live free in this black body, he asks, given that progress in America has always been and is today predicated upon systematic violence against blacks? Race is not a biological or ethnic category for Coates. It's a carefully crafted social construction built from the likes of slavery, segregation, Jim Crow, mass incarceration, redlining, and numerous federal policies. The violence is exacerbated by the American myths of exceptionalism and innocence. There's also the power of accompanying of a comforting national narrative that Coates calls the dream, which is, in fact, our collective delusion. There's nothing broken or aberrant here, nor should we be surprised, for the system is working just like the dreamers have planned. Coates recalls his experiences of growing up in West Baltimore, his adolescent years on the streets and in the schools and black churches felt like a parallel universe, a cosmic injustice compared to the lives of the dreamers. New experiences at Howard University expanded his horizons, as did moving to New York City and trips to Paris. But the rage returned and even radicalized when a black classmate was murdered by a black policeman. There's no consolation here. Coates doesn't tell his son that things will get better. There's little encouragement to be had from genuine progress, like electing a black president twice. He feels trapped in his own carefully constructed and alternative history and feels tied to old ways. It's naive to hope the dreamers will change. Coates has no religious faith or political hope that justice will be served. He's full of fears and even a sense of powerlessness. He writes, 
We cannot will ourselves to an escape on our own. There is no velocity of escape. He offers no answers, just many complicated questions. At best, the dream is countered by what Coates calls the struggle. The object and goal of the struggle will likely escape our grasp, but there is wisdom to be found at the bottom of the well. The struggle has meaning in and of itself, he says. It assures you, my son, an honorable and sane life. The struggle, Coates tells his son, is really all I have for you because it is the only portion of this world under your control. A new book by Ta Nehisi Coates, nominated for a National Book Award, it's called Between the World and Me. For film this week, I review a movie called On the Way to School from 2015. This 80-minute film was originally released in 2013 in France and Italy, where it broke box office records for a documentary film. Without any narration at all, the movie follows four children as they go to school. In Kenya, 11-year-old Jackson and his sister leave at 5.30 a.m. and must watch out for wild elephants. He's especially intent because it's his day to raise the flag at school. Zahira, age 12, and her two girlfriends walk four hours once a week to their boarding school in the snow-capped mountains of Morocco. Carlos of Patagonia in Argentina rides his horse 90 minutes every day. And on the Bay of Bengal in India, Samuel is confined to a rusty wheelchair that's tricked out with a white plastic chair. But no problem. His two brothers push him to school on an hour-plus trip every morning. But don't pity these kids. You will envy their resilience, resourcefulness, independence, and self-sufficiency. The remarkable scenery and ethnography are an added bonus. I watched this film on Netflix streaming. It would, it would make for a fantastic family film night. Once again, the title, On the Way to School. For poetry this week, we've posted a poem by a favorite poet, Scott Cairns. It's called Idiot Psalm Number 12. O being both far distant and most near, O lover embracing all unlovable, O tender tether binding us together and binding yea and tenderly, your person to ourselves, being both beyond our kin and kindred, one whose dire energies invest such clay as ours with patent animation. O secret ones secreting life anew into our every tissue moribund, afresh unto our state installing craft, grant in this obscurity a little light.
Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, November 15th, 2015. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. 